This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. To live in Colorado these days is to be stuck in traffic. And at the state capitol, two starkly different proposals are shaping up to deal with that. Keep in mind, the Transportation Department identified $9 billion in need. Republicans say the state's got enough on hand to pay for a good chunk of that. Governor John Hickenlooper disagrees, as he told us in our regular conversation. Governor, welcome back to the program. Glad to be back. In your State of the State speech, you said, quoting here, it's time to go to voters. Uh, Governor Hickenlooper, I want to get crystal clear on what that means. (laughs) Do you want to ask voters for a tax increase this year? I don't see how we're really going to address it without some new revenue. Okay. So whether it's a sales tax or an income tax, you know, some form of property tax, however it works. I mean, we haven't raised our gasoline tax in more than 25 years. So you're still not committing to what kind of tax? I'll say that the legislature last year rejected a half-cent sales tax for transportation. The Denver Chamber of Commerce, a big business group, has said it will ask voters to approve a sales tax in November. Uh, There are some indications it could be about the same size as what the legislature asked for. So if that's on the ballot, and I don't know, maybe you've talked to the Denver Chamber of Commerce, would you support a half-cent sales tax? We want to get on the same page. How big a sales tax? What is included in that? You know, I'm a big fan of including also broadband and water infrastructure along with transportation infrastructure. Got it. You know, that's something I think that the process that the chamber and the other civic organizations, you know, that they sit and they they come up with the best, what they think is the best solution. and, and, And we're part of that discussion. Support, obviously, among Coloradans is going to be key here. Uh, And one obstacle to that is that Republicans in the legislature say Colorado can make the necessary road improvements without a tax increase. They point out the state has about a billion dollars in new revenue this year, uh, and they would use some of that to sell about three and a half billion dollars in bonds over 20 years for transportation. That, too, would require a vote of the people, by the way. But if the money's there, who needs a tax increase? Well, certainly if the money's there... I mean, the last thing anybody wants to do is go through a long campaign around uh, a tax increase. But we have sliced and diced this every which way you can. Even the extra revenue. Yeah, even the re- and, and, and certainly the, re- the remaining revenue. Uh, if we stay and keep the amount of funding that we give to public education, right, if we, if we keep that absolutely flat, the, the leftover money, we put together a whole plan that said we would give 75% of whatever's left to roads. Right? I'm happy to do that. 9% to water, 6% to buildings, you know, 6% to affordable housing. That's a huge commitment to transportation. But it's not going to be the $300 million that they're pushing for. I've invited, and I'm happy to have any of the representatives come down, and you know, I'll walk them through whichever agency they think they're going to find that the $300 million in cuts, or the, let's say the $250 million in cuts that, that would be necessary. If you don't, haven't sat down and worked through the budgets, it sounds like a great idea if you think there's $300 million there. Uh, let's talk some geography now. You gave your State of the State speech last week, and we did a word search on the text. Uh-huh. You, you said the word rural uh-huh. 28 times. Oh, uh-huh, really? Yeah. That's almost double the 15 mentions from last year. And the previous high for that term was seven, seven references. Is it that you've become more interested in these issues? Are you trying to enlist more support from rural lawmakers? No, no. It's, if you go back and look over the last three or four years, we were focused six years ago on trying to make sure we got broadband into every part of the state. My first four years, we were maniacal in our focus on trying to create jobs 
and, and stimulate the economy. And I think with some positive results, right? We went from 40th in job creation. Now we're first, second, third, depending on who you talk to. We definitely clearly saw that as the economy came back, it was not benefiting rural parts of the state at the same level as benefiting the front range. You know, this is a challenge that's been going on for decades, right? It's hard for a young couple to both find interesting, rewarding jobs in smaller communities. This is just the nature of the, of the creature. Our feeling now, I think, is that we just need to keep pushing slightly larger incentives to motivate, give a higher motivation for people to set up their business. Give me one. Rural broadband, you've already mentioned. Give me one more. Jumpstart is a program whereby people starting a business in rural parts of the state, if they are in conjunction with a community college or any higher education facility, they can literally pay the state no taxes for five years as an incentive to get them to locate in rural areas. You know, too many people think young people don't want to return to their small towns. And during the stock show, I did a special luncheon at the governor's mansion for future farmers of America. They were 18, 17, 19 years old in college. I asked them, how many of you would return to your small hometown if you could get a good job there once you finish college? Every hand went up. And the that, desire is there, you're the saying, desire is but there. the support isn't necessary. Yeah, and one of the kids came and said, but, you know, if I come back there and I fall in love and I bring my husband with me, I need a job and he needs a job. That's a trick. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're back at the state capitol for our regular conversation with Colorado's governor, John Hickenlooper. As you know, Colorado's in the midst of a drug epidemic. The legislature will consider several bills to deal with addiction and overdoses, One would allow Denver to create a safe injection site, a place where addicts could go and use drugs under supervision. Uh, That could be located just blocks from here. Walk outside and you'll clearly see people who are using and in distress. Uh, Do you support a supervised injection site? It's more important that we accept the notion we're going to look at everything. And this really is an epidemic of, you know, really historic proportions. I mean, far more people dying of overdoses than die on our highways, for instance. Is this the right specific, you know, one of the best solutions? Uh, I know Vancouver, I think, has had some significant success. They haven't had a single overdose death at their supervised injection facility. Right. And, and otherwise, we're seeing people die in restrooms and in, in under bridges. And so I think maybe it, it merits certainly consideration. Uh, a bipartisan a committee met outside of the legislative session and recommended a bill go forward, it's very likely to land on your desk with that kind of bipartisan support. Would you sign it? I try not to be speculative in in terms of, well, I'll sign this bill or I won't sign this bill, because they always change before, from when they first present them to when they get to my desk. But certainly I'm receptive. Uh, One of the arguments when it comes to a safe injection site is that if addicts are supervised, if they're using clean equipment, that the number of deaths indeed will drop. You know, on the other hand, there's the argument that drug use is against state and federal law. You know, should the government set up a place where people can essentially break the law? What are your concerns? Because it sounds like you're not 100% behind the idea of a safe injection site. Yeah, I think we've got to work through all those concerns. And conflict with federal and state laws is something we have to evaluate. I think we also want to make sure that there are no unintended consequences that come out of this. And it's good to have a, you know, an example like uh, Vancouver. Usually on things like this that are, have the potential to be very controversial, usually we'll have five or ten 
models that we can show people. You know, one of the arguments is this will encourage more people to do opioids, to do drugs. I don't think that's true. But that argument has some traction with many people, and we have to be able to give examples. The Republicans have identified another priority this year, and that's reform of Colorado's public employee retirement plan, which serves about half a million current and retired government workers. It's called PARA for short, uh, and it is actually short of money. It has about $32 billion in unfunded liabilities, maybe more than that. Workers under PARA, they get a set amount of money every month after they retire. And that's in contrast to most of the private sector, which has some sort of 401k. You know, it's not a defined benefit. Yeah, but I think... Why not make uh, these workers adopt something more like what the private sector has more often? Okay, so transitioning from a defined benefit to a 401k yeah. is very hard. And I've, I've seen it. All those people that were under the defined benefit, you've got to keep making sure they get paid. But now all the new people that historically would be paying into the corpus to make sure the existing pool gets their retirement payments... You take that away when you put their money, all goes into a 401k. Also, I would say that if you look at the Great Recession, estimates vary between 30 to 60% of people with 401ks significantly rated them. I think the private sector is going to start coming back to pensions. And I would argue that it would be better to have some combination where the, the, you, you pay the money and it's in the pension. But if things go up and down a little bit and some years you don't get uh, cost of living adjustment. If some mm. years you can't afford to get as much as you got last year, but allows them to make sure they've got pensions that will last through their lifetimes, that's a good trade, I a think. A sort of hybrid, if the you hybrid will. model would be something we could work to or at least talk about. The Trump administration last week gave states permission to require Medicaid recipients to work. Uh, the argument is that if you require these folks to have jobs, they'll ultimately work their way into positions that offer health insurance and they'll get off Medicaid. Would you support a work requirement in Colorado? Well, I'd want to see what it looked like. Certainly, everybody has you know, a problem with freeloaders and people getting something for nothing. The numbers I've been shown, 75% of the people receiving Medicaid are working. A significant number of the remaining 25% can't get daycare, can't get childcare, or they're taking care of an elder uh, or, or, or they're taking care of someone who's got developmental disabilities, and, and it keeps them from doing the more traditional paid work. What I think I hear you saying is that, to use your word, freeloaders, you don't see those f- freeloaders existing, at, at least in any significant numbers in Colorado? I don't have those numbers, but there might be 5% or 10% there that are you know, only working 20 hours a week or don't fit that, that criteria of working. My guess, to, to go and measure and find out who is and who isn't and take them on and take them off becomes a real challenge. And again, I'd rather see a more comprehensive, you know, reform that kind of pulls several of these federal programs together and really looks at, let's get rid of the cliff effects. The cliff effect is the idea that once you make over a certain threshold, you're immediately off Medicaid. You lose everything. And it's a disincentive then to, to get a raise or to go after the job that might pay a scotch more. Right but you wind up losing health care. Right, so it should maybe a sli- there should be maybe a sliding scale in some way. Now, is that something the state can lead on? You know, I've talked to other governors about this, and I think the states could definitely kind of take the lead on looking at what an overall reform might look like that was developed by both Republicans and Democrats. I mean, one of the things, you know, one of the things I said in my State of the State speech was we're going to focus on things that are bipartisan and are based on data, on, on doing the best we can with the information that we have. And this is a classic case is let's not 
jump off and do something without really understanding what the unintended consequences would be. So November is shaping up to be an epic fight for control of Congress. Uh, There are governor's races in 36 states, including Colorado. I want to know how much you'll be out campaigning for your fellow Democrats around the country. Are we going to see you popping up in other states? Well, the trick trick here is, unfortunately, we've got this big agenda for our last year. You look at apprenticeships, what we're trying to do with apprenticeships. You look at what we're trying to do, really begin to address affordable housing on a statewide basis. I'm sure I will get involved because I care about this. And I'm really, for the first time since I've been in public life, I'm frustrated by what I see in Washington, just in the purely partisan. It's just, it's gone beyond what I would have thought imaginable. And I think when I do go out, I'm going to try and focus on candidates that, that may be Democrats, but are less partisan. In other words, they're, they're Democrats who would be willing to compromise. And hopefully, I've talked to a couple of my Republican governor friends, they're going to do the same thing and go out and try and get Republican candidates that are less partisan and willing to compromise. Because in the end, I think we need to get more Republicans and Democrats in the House, in the U.S. Senate, who you know, listen to each other, and even if they can't get everything that they want or their party wants, I mean, I was talking to Michael Bennett, our U.S. Senator, and he pointed out to me that we have had continuing resolutions for almost 10 years now. In, this in is Congress. for funding the government. Right. So the, the, the priorities that were established by which the present budget, they're still using a budget from 10 years ago, and to say that this country hasn't changed and doesn't need to have new priorities is crazy. I think if we got some people that weren't quite so partisan and were willing to be more more open to compromise. It could have a huge positive benefit on the country. Governor, thanks for being with us. Always a pleasure. Democrat John Hickenlooper is Colorado's governor. We speak with him regularly at the state capitol. And you know, earlier we singled out his repeated use of the word rural in his final state of the state speech. Well, I want to single out another term he used twice, topophilia. I had to look that up. It means a strong sense of place. Deer are causing problems in Colorado Springs. They ruin gardens, get stuck in soccer nets. They attract predators, cause car accidents. Frank McGee fielded a ton of calls about this when he took over as the wildlife manager in the area a few years ago. And the city and county have asked for his help. And one solution he's recommending is letting people hunt deer in the city. McGee is with Colorado Parks and Wildlife. And Frank, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. I want to be very clear. We're not talking about hunting with guns in downtown Colorado Springs. So what are we talking about when you suggest allowing hunting? What do you mean? Well, so there are a lot of communities that have done urban hunts um, all over the country, and and all of them do it slightly differently. But most of them require folks to use archery equipment or limit when and where people can hunt, um, require people to take extra safety classes hunt from elevated tree stands so that they're shooting down at the ground. Um, it's a, it'd be a very restricted hunt if there was a hunt. Okay. Um, but, but a lot of different communities have done different things. But likely a bow and arrow would be involved among the other communities in Colorado that have done this. Salida, Buena Vista, La Vida, Alamosa. Uh, what, what should I be picturing, though? I mean, like, if there's a deer in front of City Hall on Nevada Avenue or in front of the antlers downtown, would I be able to hunt it? No. I mean, okay. so this this is not going to allow people to, you know, hunt on, you know, private property where they don't have permission or anything like that. And and again, this is just one of many different solutions that we're talking about with the city. 
um, to help them, you know, address the overabundance of deer in town. Uh, it's, it's not necessarily, you know, not the only one by any means. Indeed. But how urban could it get, in other words, this urban hunt? Well, again, it'll be entirely up to this community to decide what they want to do. Um, but a lot of communities will restrict the, the size of the property that folks are allowed to hunt on. So, if, for example, some communities will require that you have five acres or two acres or something like that. Hmm. Some communities only allow hunting on parks and open spaces. Um, and, you know, they may do those in the winter when they're less busy. They may close them on a certain day or at a certain time. Again, it could look like any number of different things. Well, in the communities that have instituted this, how have the hunts gone? And have they managed to significantly reduce the deer population and the conflicts that we talked about at the beginning? They have. You know, it's one of the things that the reason this is done in so many communities is that not only is it effective at reducing deer populations, um, but it's also, uh, you know, cost effective. So, you know, some some techniques are maybe effective and and they'd be more or less palatable to the public, but they also may cost a great deal of money to do. And and typically for a hunt, you can charge people for the privilege of participating in it, and so you can defray the cost of, of managing it in that way. And a good local example here is the U.S. Air Force Academy has been doing um, a, an urban hunt, if you will, huh. on the Air Force Academy since the early 80s. Um, and, you know, used to be on the Air Force Academy, they would have up to 175 collisions with deer every year on the Air Force Academy. Um, Since instituting their hunt, you know, that number is much, much lower, um, sometimes as low as 10 or even less than that. As you say, there are other ways to deal with the deer population. So you could deal with deer fertility. You could move them. You could relocate them. Uh, but as you say, these are more expensive ways of, of managing the animals. Uh, are there other ideas on the table, though, in Colorado Springs, and what are they? I think all of the ideas are on the table. I think what we're trying to do is learn from other communities that have already addressed this issue and, and kind of take those best practices and, and decide what this community would like to try and do with their deer. Um, you know, they are all on the table, Um some of them are more effective or less effective. And then, of course, finding a way to, to pay for them is also part of the issue. Yeah, why not just move the deer out of town, you know, a little further out and say, set up, sure. Sure, set up shop here, deer? Yeah. So there's a couple of issues with moving deer. The first, the most concerning for us as an agency is that we're responsible for managing populations of deer and other animals, of course. And so we, we want to do no harm. And we have to manage those at a statewide level. And the deer, especially in an urban environment where the densities are very high, um, there's some feeding that goes on illegally, um, there's, there's also a higher density of disease in these animals. Ah. So things like chronic wasting disease, epizootic hemorrhagic disease, we want to be careful not to introduce those diseases to populations where they're not already present. So in other words, if we took deer from here and took them someplace where that disease wasn't, um, you know, we could eventually end up having a a long-term negative effect on the deer population. Back to this idea of an urban hunt. Uh, Have there been accidents in other communities? Because I think of the fact that you're you're just hunting, even with a bow and arrow, in places with more people. Right. And and I'm not aware of any accidents and, and I can't, you know, definitively say there haven't been any anywhere because this is something that's going on all over the country. Um, but hunting, even, you know, in, in uh, a general sense, is a very, very safe sport. 
Um, it's one of the most safe activities that someone can engage in as far as recreation goes. It's safer than riding your bicycle. Um, and then typically these urban hunts have, like I talked about at the beginning, a lot of other restrictions on them that make them even safer. So there's not been any incidents um, that I'm aware of in Colorado or or elsewhere. Um, but again, it's, it is something that's done all over the country. Yeah, one thing you, you said that could be a condition of being able to hunt closer to the city is additional training. Uh, and that, that has happened in other communities that it's um, supported with, with just more, more training. Right. So any, anyone who wants to hunt anywhere is required to take a hunter education class. Yep. And then a lot of these communities that are going to allow some kind of an urban hunt will require folks to take an additional class that talks about safety and, and considerations in an urban environment and those sort of things. And then some will also take it a step further and require people to pass some kind of a proficiency test. So again, if, if you're requiring people to use archery equipment, um, you can require them to demonstrate that they're going to be proficient with that archery equipment and hit the target that they're aiming at. Um, so that's something that a lot of communities have done as well. Just how bad is the deer problem in Colorado Springs? Help us understand the kind of conflicts that this has resulted in and maybe why there are so many deer. Two-part question, I guess. Um, well, let's start with why there are so many deer. I mean, okay. why there are so many deer is because we plant a lot of stuff that deer like to eat. And unlike Mother Nature, we water our groceries. Um, so we have irrigation systems and landscaping and things like that that provide um, food for the animals. There's also, you know, while we do bring some predators into town, there's less of the natural predators for deer in town than there would be in a, in a, in a mountain setting, for example. Um, as far as the scope of, of how many deer there are here in Colorado Springs, so we, that was one of the questions that we didn't really have a very good answer for. So we did a, a deer count um, last month and uh, followed up on a study that we did where we collared deer uh, back in the early 2000s. And as a result of that, you know, we found that we probably have something like 3,000 deer in Colorado Springs on the west side of town. Oh. Um, we could have as many as 5,000 deer, but it's probably 3,000. And for context, you know, that that is, uh, you know, an area of 39 square miles that we kind of surveyed. And we have a, a, a herd of deer that we manage just west of town. Uh, and that herd, we have 4,000 animals in that entire herd. Um, in, in that area that we manage there is 1,200 square miles. So we have 4,000 deer for 1,200 square miles and 3,000 deer for 39 square miles. So the, the densities of deer in town are very high. Um, and, and that brings a lot of the issues you already mentioned uh, at the beginning. You know, we have a lot of collisions with cars. We have damage to property. We have deer getting stuck in fences and nets. Um, and we have issues with the disease in the deer as well. Um, and then the animals that eat those deer follow them into town. So every once in a while, we have an issue with a mountain lion that will take a deer and cache it someplace unfortunate in a park or underneath someone's deck or something like that. Huh. Different species entirely, but I was surprised to read uh, just recently that urban hunting is also spreading to the management of coyotes in Los Angeles, Chicago, Ohio, the suburbs of Minneapolis. Right. Uh, so it's it's not just that urban hunts could affect deer. Well, at this point, we're just talking about deer. But, but hunting is the way that we have managed wildlife in North America for over 100 years. It's very effective. We know how to do it. We have a lot of experience doing it. 
Um, and, you know, in, in addition to that, it provides some benefit to the public where, you know, there's meat that they can take home to feed their family. How about fencing or repellents? So fencing and repellents um, are moderately effective, and, and especially if you have just a small area when you're trying to prevent damage, you know, a garden or something like that, for example, that can be very effective. Um, we have some places where, um, you know, we can, or CDOT and other agencies have fenced stretches of highways where there have been, uh, you know, deer or elk migrating and crossing and a lot of collisions. So it's very effective at, at those kinds of solutions, but it doesn't address the overall issue of kind of the population levels and numbers. So Frank, to wrap up, if it were up to you, would you recommend an urban deer hunt in Colorado Springs, El Paso County? Well, I think to be clear, it's, it's not up to me, right? And so yeah. my agency is is charged with managing the people's resource. And so the deer belong to the people, and in this case, belong to the people of Colorado Springs. And so it's my role to, you know, let them know what all the options are and what can be done and how it can be done, and then help them to, you know, make an informed choice. And then working with them, kind of put it in action. You are a wildlife manager and a diplomat, it sounds like. Thanks for being with us. We really appreciate your time. Thank you, sir. That is Frank McGee, Area Wildlife Manager for the state in the Colorado Springs region. On Friday, he'll talk with city staff about how to manage deer, including the possibility of a hunt in the city. By the way, Parks and Wildlife is funded through hunting licenses, but McGee says opening the hunt to urban areas would generate an insignificant sum of money for the agency. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Imagine a great city was the slogan that helped catapult Denver Mayor Federico Pena into office in 1983. But another man helped make that phrase a reality, his deputy director of urban design, Ron Straka. Straka championed downtown redevelopment, and he pushed hard for Coors Field to be located in what was then a rundown stretch of warehouses. Straka died in the final days of 2017, and we're going to remember him now with Susan Barnskelt. She was an assistant to Mayor Pena and later a Denver City Council member. Hi, Susan. Hi, Ryan. Why was Ron... Nice to hear you. Oh, nice to hear you as well. We're in separate locations, I'll say. Uh, Why was Ron so adamant that Coors Field be located where it is today, near Lower Downtown? Ron felt that sports stadiums, particularly baseball, America's sport, needed to be in a location that was neighborly. It needed to be in a brick building. It needed to be a ball field, not an urban amenity, if you could see the difference. It it needed to be a real place where people could walk that could have a sense of defining and relating to the context of the neighborhood, which, you know, lower downtown, upper lower downtown, even now, as quickly as Denver has developed, still has kind of a, a human-scaled, comfortable, lived-in feel. Hmm. What other sites were considered for Coors Field? Well, there were a number of sites. Um, there was a site 
on the plat if you're that was like a, pretty close to where the children's museum oh, yeah. is. So it was a good site in the sense that it was still urban, but it wasn't a walkable from downtown site. So Straka felt, even though obviously when you're filling up a baseball field um, stadium, not everyone can walk because of the mall and the mall shuttle, shuttle and the availability, particularly in those days, of surface parking in uptown adjacent to downtown. Straka felt that people co- could come from all over the metro area, find a reasonably inexpensive place to park, hop on the shuttle, get off um, at the street and walk to the stadium. So it, even though the reality has become uh, his vision some 15, 20 years later, he he felt that if the stadium were in the right place at the right scale with the right feel, that ever the optimist he was, that mm-hmm. the city would, it seems funny to say, grow into the location. But in fact, that's exactly what happened. Yeah, I mean, this required such vision. I, I want to yeah. point out that, that he worked in the Pena administration which ran from 1983 to 1991. And that was really a time in which uh, people were fleeing to the suburbs. Downtown was not the the cool, hip magnet that it is today. He really had to imagine what downtown would be that would envelop Coors Field and make it attractive. Uh just describe just for a bit what downtown would have been at that time and, and just like how much well, vision that required. Keep in mind that, I mean, the, the uh, reality always uh, follows history. So the, in the history of cities in the 80s, really beginning in the 60s, really beginning after World War II, city, C-I-T-Y, became a four-letter word. And part of that was um, the development of freeways. Part of it was post-World War II housing policies, which were great. You know, the VA um, providing financing for uh, veterans to buy homes, which was great, but it was very, they were very suburban. The interstate highway system, you know, came in, right about then, post-World War II. So the combination of highways, um, tracked, affordable, but tracked housing, suburban development, and a general feeling that was universal. It wasn't particularly Denver. It was all cities in the United States that cities weren't safe. And, you know, truly, the urban renewal Movement. We used to call. I, we some still call the urban removal movement. <laughs> yeah, given how many buildings des- were were demolished, yeah, beautiful buildings in downtown, unbelievable, yeah. and human scaled buildings. I mean, when you look at photographs of Denver and tell urban renewal, the streets were walkable. The scale was human. I mean, it it was. It's exact. People talk about new urbanism. Here's the thing. New urbanism is old urbanism. Huh. So, but the, the people were fleeing 
for suburban tract homes that were in love with the automobile. Cities were decimated, and Denver was smack in the middle of that movement. So I think Denver was not any different than most American cities, and particularly cities, I think, in the West and Southwest that had been, you know, I call them instant cities. They they didn't evolve over centuries. They kind of, something happened. And Denver, as you know, is the discovery of gold at the confluence of the Platte and Cherry Creek. And that was kind of Eureka event. And Denver went from being kind of a dusty mountain mining town to a city and, it, you know, it went from zero population to 100,000 in about 20 years because of the discovery of gold. Let's get back to Ron Straka and uh, how he convinced Mayor Pena to follow this vision. Uh, well, I mean, you can have I, a vision, but if you're not the yeah. one in power, it doesn't necessarily get implemented. I would say that the distinguishing feature of Federico Pena as mayor of Denver is that he had the confidence in himself and the courage to bring people in who challenged him to to take risk. And, I mean, he took risks. He ran for mayor, right? But when you get elected on Imagine a Great City, then, you, then here you are, Federico Pena, aged 37 or 8, having spent two years in the Colorado legislature and, you and you know, being very disciplined and very aspirational and very smart. And you think, okay, now i got to build a great city. How am I going to do that? So he brought in, among others, this team of architects and urban designers, Bill Lamont, Ron Straka, Jim Murray, Ruth Rodriguez, who still works for the city, who were just visionary, accomplished, amazing talents. And they combined with others in the Payne administration, Tom Gujan. And, you know, he gave people who were very, very talented the cover to take risk. And I think risk-taking, you know, the thing about government and, you know, whether it's local, national, or state, government typically isn't risk-taking, and in many ways it shouldn't be. But it was really the remarkable confluence of timing and a remarkable group of very talented people. Well, and leave us with and, this. Leave yeah. us with this, Susan Barnesgeld. Uh, what do you remember about Ron Straka? What was he like as a person? Maybe something he taught you. He was the kindest, softest, most gentle person among the most that I've ever met in my entire life. But he was so, I would say, obdurate. He was so stubborn and so tenacious in a a wonderfully kind, you know, he wasn't hostile. He was just focused. And his way was so engaging that he disarmed people, and he just had this tenacity of vision and 
focus and he knew how to, like with me, he could see that I was, you know, a risk taker. I'm an extrovert. I'm stubborn. I'll, t- you know, somebody says, I bet you won't do X and I do X. So he saw that I would kind of, could be his wingman and force. Of course, I was on the council or when he was working for Pena, he didn't need me. But when I was on the council and Pena was no longer mayor and he was not, he was sometimes on contract for the city, he was still pushing. I love that word, obdurate. I'm so glad you used it on this show. That's Susan Barnskelt, former Denver City Council member. We remembered the late Ron Straka, who served as deputy director of urban design under Denver Mayor Federico Pena. We should say that Straka died December 28th. He was 80. Colorado's runaway opioid crisis just got worse with the closing earlier this month of the state's largest drug and alcohol treatment provider, Arapahoe House. CPR health reporter John Daly has more on the consequences. On the front lines of Colorado's battle with addiction, the new year rang in with an ominous note. Arapahoe House closed with just a two-week notice. Other treatment centers like the Denver Recovery Group had no heads up. Its executive director, Denise Vincioni, says her staff began preparing for new patients and weighing the fallout. I think it's a confusing time for a lot of us that have relied on Arapahoe House for for years. This center helps people with an opiate addiction. Patients are prescribed medication to help manage it. But Vincioni says for those needing a higher level of care, this outpatient facility isn't enough. We have no idea what they're going to do now. For more than four decades, Arapahoe House provided an array of treatment services to 5,000 people a year. It met a key niche in the community. Most of its clients received safety net services like Medicaid. Vincioni says it offered a critical service, inpatient residential treatment, rehab, including for pregnant women. For us, it's always difficult to get somebody in residential. It's just going to enhance that problem. It's just going to enhance the existing issue. The timing could hardly be worse. The opioid crisis is raging. 300 Coloradans died in 2016 from an opioid overdose, 228 from heroin. Treatment at places like the Denver Recovery Group is critical to fighting that. In the lobby, Autumn Haggard-Wolf sits with her 8-year-old Dustin. His hat sports colorful animals. It's Angry Bears. Oh, Angry Bears. Haggard-Wolf is a Denver resident. She was a two-time Arapahoe House patient and is now in recovery. She says her trouble got started with back surgery. Prescription pain medication led to heroin. Haggard-Wolf got help and is doing better, but says treatment is hard to find, especially if you don't have money. Now I feel like the only other option right now for in therapy would be jail for people. And that's not, people die in there from withdrawing. She worries the closing will have dire consequences. We're probably going to see probably, I would say, more deaths. Denver Recovery Group leader Denise Vincioni also laments the loss of such a large provider. You don't have treatment, people are going to die. The urgency of the situation is not lost on other treatment community leaders, like Daniel Darting. He's CEO of Signal Behavioral Health Network, which manages treatment services throughout the Denver area. Darting says he was blindsided by the move. That's stunning. Arapahoe House's CEO blames the high cost of care and poor government reimbursement for services for its shutdown. Darting says other providers are stepping up to help, 
taking Arapahoe House's former patients. He hopes this sudden shock will lead to a better system, less reliant on one big provider. Better options for people, more providers who will be working with as a result of this, and that gives consumers better or more choices, I should say. Representative Brittany Pedersen says addiction treatment has been chronically underfunded for years. She's a Democrat from Lakewood whose mother battled addiction and was treated at Arapahoe House. Pedersen says at least 80 percent of people who want treatment can't get it. We have a huge gap in Colorado, and that was before Arapahoe House closed. She's pushing for a new law this legislative session. It would remove hurdles to payment for treatment, especially from insurance companies. It would also expand Medicaid coverage for residential treatment programs. But Pedersen says the state still needs more facilities. It's going to take a lot to climb out of where we are. Pedersen says new treatment centers can't open soon enough. The grim reality, she fears, will show up in clear view when next year's drug death numbers are released. I'm John Daly, CPR News. You know the expression, a bull in a china shop? Denver's version of that takes place tomorrow when the champion steer from the National Western Stock Show will traipse into the Brown Palace Hotel downtown at tea time. For more on this unusual tradition, I'm joined by the hotel's historian, Deborah Faulkner. Deborah, welcome back to the program. Thank you. Pleasure to be here this morning. First off, set the scene for us, I suppose, before the steer arrives. Um, This is during... English-style afternoon tea, which is a tradition at the Brown. What does the lobby look like when it's gussied up for tea? Well, right now we still have our holiday decorations up because, of course, that's a long-time downtown Denver tradition to leave those holiday decorations up till the end of the National Western Stock Show. So right in the middle of our soaring eight-story atrium lobby with a stained-glass skylight is a 4,000-pound LED chandelier, which is pretty spectacular, as you can imagine. Okay, (laughs) so the steer is under a chandelier. Uh, Sounds like we're making poetry live on the radio. (laughs) Um, and so the stock show will name its grand champion steer tonight, mm-hmm. and then he'll walk into the hotel, I think, at about 11 in the morning mm-hmm. Friday. Exactly. How did this tradition get started? Well, it goes all the way back to 1945 and a gentleman named Dan Thornton, who later becomes Colorado governor in 1950. But at the time, he's a rancher, a Hereford breeder in Gunnison County. Good friends with the Betchers, the hotel owners at the time, because they always stay there for the stock show. The Betchers, that's the name we see all over. Mm-hmm. Three generations of Betchers owned the hotel. Um, and when his two Hereford bulls, they were bulls at this time, um, auctioned that year for an unprecedented $50,000 each, My. it made national news. And C.K. Betcher asked him to exhibit them in the lobby for the national media. And that was the beginning of the tradition. What a strange request and one that just <laughs> seems fraught. I mean, just so risky to bring in unpredictable animals. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about people here. Here, uh, in, into the Brown Palace. Mm-hmm. Well, at the time the first ones were exhibited, we didn't do afternoon tea. That's only been happening since 1986. I see. Yeah. Are there ways that they keep the steer calm? My understanding is that they actually bring in a second mm-hmm. so that the steer has a, a buddy. Yeah, the reserve grand champion, the sort of runner-up. And the two together sort of help keep each other calm. 
So who comes out for this? I mean, I know a lot of people book tea well in advance so that they can be alongside the steer Mm -hmm. sipping Earl Grey. (laughs) That's true. And then we have a lot of people who just work downtown, may come on their lunch hour. Um, Sometimes we get whole preschools that come to see the spectacle. Um, Because besides the uh, steer and the runner-up steer, we've also got the rodeo royalty all there in their glittery cowboy hats. And it's, it's quite a sight to see. Have there been issues with the steers? I mean, do they ever escape or get unruly? They really seem very calm considering how many people come up and pet them and pose for photos and all of that. The only uh, story I know about one kind of getting out of control, it was not in the lobby itself. It was when it was being reloaded into its trailer on 17th Street entrance, um, somehow managed to break away from its handlers, go tearing down 17th Street. And the story goes that he caught sight of his reflection in a plate glass window. And when he stopped to admire himself, that's when they were able to recapture him. I I think you hinted at this. The steer does not enter through the the front door. I suppose that would be difficult. I think it's a revolving door, if Mm -hmm. I remember from the last time. And there are steps. And I'm not quite sure how steers do with steps. (laughs) So 17th Street side is kind of our um, handicapped wheelchair entrance. So it's just flush with the street. A lot easier for them. Got it. How long is the steer in the lobby? Just for two hours from 11 till 1. These are steers raised by teenagers. Yeah, 4-H kids from about 13 to about 16 years old. Has there ever, because I know that the uh, ownership of the Brown has transferred over the years, has there ever been discussion of like, is this a tradition to continue? Can we take on the liability? Does, does your insurer know about this? I suppose if they, they do now, <laughs> they, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure they always have. Um, it's just such a beloved tradition. And, you know, as hard as Denver tries to say we are not a cow town, at the same time, you've got to honor, you know, the role that the livestock industry has played in this city and this state's um, development and um, prosperity. So um, I have never heard of anyone even considering not continuing this tradition. Do you know how far people come from to see this? I know I've uh, heard people from Wyoming come quite All often. the way from All Wyoming. Way from okay, Wyoming. B- bordering <laughs> Wyoming. Um, but, of course, we have regular hotel guests that are there, too, mm. and they come from all over the country and all over the world. And um, if they don't know this is coming, they're a little taken aback. <laughs> Uh, are the steers gussied up in some regard? Oh, they are. They're blow-dried and brushed off all so- soft and fluffy. I am pretty sure they even have mascara on their eyelashes. Okay. They look like big teddy bears, and the last thing you want to do is eat them. <laughs> the last thing you want to do is eat them, but that is uh, imminent hmm. for the champion steer and the runner-up, right? It is, Yeah. What happens? Well, I don't want to go into details. <laughs> it used to be, though, that mm-hmm. the Brown Palace. Yes. For decades, it was the, the further tradition of the hotel to purchase the grand champion at auction and serve him in the restaurant. And as best I can tell, that was kind of quietly discontinued sometime in the 90s. But the tradition of our chefs coming out toward the end of the exhibition in their chef outfits and inspecting the steer sort of is a remnant of that. Thanks for being with us. You bet. Deborah Faulkner, historian at the Brown Palace Hotel in Denver. Tomorrow, Friday, the champion steer from the National Western Stock Show will stroll into the hotel lobby. Finally today, music you may not expect from Greeley, Colorado. Taxi, Peggy! 
This is the Persian Music Ensemble. It grew out of jam sessions that have taken place in a Greeley home for about 20 years. Every Tuesday, members of the city's Iranian community play music, eat traditional Middle Eastern fare, swap stories, and hang out well into the night. The band's Facebook page lists six members, but they encourage anyone who's interested to join in. So we leave you with the Persian Music Ensemble. I'm Ryan Warner, It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I see the heat of the corner.